actually, I'm the interview subject. We're doing a Q&A <laughs> about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and Joe's going to supply the cues. Right on. Uh, okay. All right, let's do it. Okay, so it seems obvious that the U.S. empire has suffered uh, a defeat. I mean, the freakout against Biden is real. It's visceral. It's, it's, uh, he's obviously paying a price. Um, but by the same token, he obviously figured the price was worth it. So what was, I guess, I guess my first question is, what was the cost of staying? And why did they think it was bigger than the, the, the cost of, of basically walking out? Wow, that's a great, that's a great way of thinking about it. The cost of staying in Afghanistan. I mean, so from 2001, uh, when they were running, they were running two operations. They were running the Operation Enduring Freedom, which was supposedly the hunt for the remnants of Al-Qaeda. And then there was the Interim Stabilization Force for Afghanistan, or ISAF. And um, ISAF was always a bit of a joke and OEF was like just running around doing these making Afghanistan into dystopia just these the night raids the bombings the kill teams right so it's a little bit like um the cost of I, I mean at some point I don't know if there's a I don't know if there's a, a an ability to stay at any price if you know what I mean like the way that I see it was they were going to be swept out of, of Afghanistan. Like once they had, like, it seems to me once, once Pakistan decided they weren't going to put up with the U S being there. And then once the Taliban had built to a certain level of strength, there was no way that the, the Afghan right. government of Ghani was going to be able to hold on. And likewise, like, you know, the allies of the Ghani government, like the, the warlords that fought a little bit and then surrendered, it was clearly like a let's test it out, you know, because I'm, there were probably, mo there probably have been moments like this in the past 20 years where, you know, the Taliban have had surges, right? Right. Like even in 2007, there was this like the return of the Taliban and they, they yeah. took, they would take big parts of the country. But I think there was probably, you know, a, the beginning of a battle for Herat, for example, where, with Ismail Khan. And then right. it was like, okay, we're not going to win this one. And then right. this is your, this is your biggest ally in Herat. So one of the major cities and he's just given up and then, your biggest ally in Mazari Sharif, you know, right. flies out. He takes the flight the hell out of there. Rashid Dostum, right? right? And Atta Mohammed right. Noor. So um, I just think it became impossible for them to stay. Right. So it's not even like they could have stayed and, right. you know, invested more. I just right. think, you know. Well, uh, Mike, Mike Preisner uh, has a chart he put up. Uh, I assume it's accurate, and it shows that the, the troops, the U.S. troops, have actually been going down dramatically in the past few years. I just wanted to uh, showcase my Orientalist mug. <laughs> okay, um, very good. I have very a nice. good Orientalist mug, Aladdin. Sorry. Um, yeah, so troop so, numbers. 
yeah, troop numbers of U.S. have, I can't, I don't, I don't remember offhand, I don't have it in front of me what the time scale was, but it was definitely a very dramatic uh, draw down. Yeah, right. Drawdown. You're right. Okay. Let me, let me now go back and revise everything that I said. So <laughs> suppose that the U S you know, took 500,000 troops, uh, and just occupied every city in, um, Afghanistan with air support and, you know, mm-hmm. all, all the toys and bells and whistles in their AC one thirty gunships and everything. The Taliban wouldn't try to attack that, yeah. right? They just lie low and just yeah. wait a moment. Like, okay, well. Done it for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. see you in 20 years. And, and, it, and it's harder for them to sell to the... If they did something like that, it would be hard to sell to the public back home after 20 years and say, oh, well, you're, you're, you're reinvesting all the... If they, if, they ever, yeah. if they were crazy enough to do it, reinvest all this troops and all this hardware yeah. to Afghanistan to reconquer something that you said you conquered yeah, uh, 20 years ago to defeat a force that you said you defeated 20 years <laughs> ago. So you're like, there's be this gi- yeah. ginormous reset, which would also be a huge propaganda defeat. Like yeah. I, the way I see it, in terms of there must have been something that said, okay, the the alternative for leaving now is worse. So I think the alternative would have been like you say, imagine this massive reinvestment, relaunching, right, right. which would have been a, a and huge- you know again, like militarily speaking, in 2001 when the U.S. took Afghanistan. Uh, the Taliban, for the most part, were advised to retreat. They didn't, you know, they put up various fights and, you know, especially the Tora Bora, the big fight in Tora Bora, the Battle of Tora Bora. But um, they, uh, for the most part, retreated. And the ground force of the U.S. was the Northern Alliance. It was these um, warlords, you know, the Mujahideen, whatever you want to call them. And that was the ground force. U.S. was basically the air force, and then a certain, you know, supplementation. Right. You know, they're so firing. yeah, they keep they keep their losses way below Vietnam levels, where they yeah. lost like fifty five thousand yeah. troops in something like ten years, more or less. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's so their losses in Afghanistan over the last twenty have been uh, not even what not even three thousand troops. So it's like a, yeah. it's so small that it can keep it out of U.S. Out of yeah. U.S. headlines. I mean, now uh, the other question, of course, that is, so there, there was basically a huge PR problem. You relaunch the war, you have a big PR problem. You withdraw now, just get your hell out. That has yeah. a PR problem, but they probably bank well. Okay, that's the lesser one. Yeah. And we can yeah. deploy our troops elsewhere or whatever. Um, but what about now? Let's get to the subject of of the losses over the last twenty years for uh, Afghans. Yeah. Because. Yeah. Um, I've heard different numbers. Uh, Greg Shupak has a piece out oh. today in Fair. Oh. Oh, uh, I think he said he had a, he had a number of something like um, of civilians directly killed by U.S. troops. It was something in the order of seventy, eighty thousand. Right. But you've cited right. larger numbers, I believe. Yeah, exactly. You could explain so, that. So uh, there was a paper by a guy named um, I think his name is Nicholas Davies, and he's with. Um, He's with, I think he's with Code Pink or, you know, it's that, it's Voices in the Wilderness. And one of those actually really good pacifist Mm -hmm. anti-war groups. And it's in this Mint Press News, which is, you know, widely demonized (laughs) by the mainstream media. They they do a lot of good stuff. They do a lot of good stuff. Alan McLeod's there. Especially Alan, yeah. Menar, I think. Yeah, I like Menar too. So they... 
the this Davies, he he looks he does the kind of a similar thing that I did in my uh, Congo Rwanda Congo book. So he he looks at like different ways that people have passive have made passive estimates of deaths. And then he compares them, the passive estimates to the mortality studies. So if you do a, a mortality study, you go and you go to households and you say, how many people in your household right. have you been scientific, killed? And you, a scientific and you, sampling. Yeah. And you, do a, and you do a representative survey. So you go to different right. kinds of houses, you go to different neighborhoods. So you, you make sure that statistically the, the number of people you've surveyed, there's a really good chance that this is going that you when you extrapolate you know if you do five percent of the population or something or two percent or whatever it is if you extrapolate to some massive uh number you're gonna get it in the right neighborhood so that's the way to do it the lancet uh study of 2006 by les roberts who you know you and i have both had some considerable contact with because we're interested in these death counting these deaths so that's the only way to do it of course Afghan the u.s doesn't give a shit they never did this for Afghanistan. They, you know, they never, they never even, I don't think anybody even talked about the possibility of doing this for Afghanistan. So what Davies does is he says, okay, well, these are the numbers for Iraq. These are the numbers for um, Guatemala. Cause he figures, he makes an argument that Guatemala is rural. You know, it's not as urban, which is a lot like Afghanistan and the war went on in this kind of similar kind of secret war kind of way with lots of air support that's not acknowledged. So he, he has a whole discussion of Guatemala. And so when he goes and he says, you know, if, if, so he takes one of the really shitty estimates of, of more of passive mortality in Afghanistan by the United Nations. And, uh, and he says, um, you know, if the un, undercounting is, the, the right in the similar ratio, then what we're talking about for Afghanistan is hundreds of thousands. He says, right. you know, his, his estimate for combatants plus um, civilians since 2001, and he's writing in 2018, so three years ago, uh, he estimates to be between 640,000 and a maximum of 1.4 million. And then that's uh, Pakistan is separate and he makes a reasonable, he calls it a reasonable midpoint estimate of 325,000 people have been killed in Pakistan as a result of the U S war in Afghanistan spilling across its borders. Yeah. That's, so, that's interesting analysis because I remember the, there was a 10,000 figure for Yemen that was like stuck. Yeah, and it just froze. Yeah. It just froze. <laughs> it was a UN figure and it was stuck. Yeah. And then it skyrocketed when they were finally, it became so obvious, like, what are you guys yeah. crazy? That can't be right. And then they yeah. had to adjust exactly. it. Yeah. So it's like, um, there are the, so you have these figures from these passive estimates and then he kind of scales them up. But, but then 2018 to 2021 is another problem. Uh, I don't think anybody's updated it, but it's, you know, you can try to do the same thing. There were um, probably, there was probably a lot of fighting um, in 20, in the past few years, and a lot of aerial attack uh, by the government in the past, in recent years, right? And, and I think, in, I think the Taliban made some kind of deal with the U.S. in Qatar to say they wouldn't attack the U.S. directly, 
uh, as right. long as the U.S. agreed to leave, um, right. and they stuck to that. But that but that means all the fighting was between the uh, government, the Afghan government, and the and the Taliban. And the Afghan government uses the same methods as the U.S., meaning they you know go these mass casualty attacks and aerial attacks and all right. and so on. It's fits okay. of firepower, right? So it's 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 a it's a it's a horrific death toll. We're talking over twenty years, and it's, it's a horrific it's death toll, and it's, it's uncertain. It's uncertain, and nobody, and it's like you know, nobody, even people in, even like government connected and NGO connected people in Kabul, that are like the only people Western media talk to. They also don't know the extent of it, right. but the right. Taliban know. Like and the people who the people who support the Taliban know, right? right? right. So mm-hmm. it's like there's like this whole thing of like how could how could people support the Taliban? Right. Um, and it's like the the government is not it's not just these people who steal like in in Afghanistan it's not like the government is just the people who are stealing U.S. contract money in Kabul. They're also the people that are completely indifferent to the fact that the U.S. is bombing villages, weddings, you know, just any gathering of people. They have kill teams. They're killing people for sport. Like they're doing all kinds of things in the in the Afghan countryside that nobody would even believe, you know. Right. Now, you I had this thing where I was thinking, you know, I looked at this. You know, because I haven't followed it like you, you follow it very closely. I have not. And I said, okay, well, I mean, what's, is it really a defeat for the U.S.? I mean, they get out. Can't they just do some long-range bombing if they really want to at some point? Can't they just strangle the economy, uh, Afghan economy, economically if they want to? And, and you were pointing out to me, and maybe, uh, you know, we were discussing this, that I really know it's not actually that easy for the U.S. And this is actually a, a, a real bigger defeat than I, than I was thinking. Yeah. So maybe you, can, maybe you can elaborate on that. So the way I understand, <laughs> like, it's, it's boggling my mind right now. Because since the 1970s, like, in the 1970s, the U.S. was so solidly ensconced in that region. They had the Shah of Iran. They had Saudi Arabia, which they still have. They had various claws into the monarchy of Afghanistan. So Afghanistan and Iran were monarchies uh, back then. Today, neither of them are, which is itself interesting in terms of like how the world changes. But in the 70s, in the early 70s, the U.S. had all kinds of assets and inroads in Afghanistan. They had all kinds of assets and inroads into Pakistan. And then in 1979, they lost Iran, right? Who lost Iran? (laughs) And Iran has been so comprehensively lost that nobody even talks about the fact that Iran has been lost. Iran is just Iran now. Um, But they lost Iran in 1979 in terms of how they see the world. And they got more solidly Pakistan in the sense that there was a military coup in, I think, 1977 uh, that brought Zia-ul-Haq into power. And then um, when the revolution happened in Afghanistan, 
1978, they also, you know, were worried about losing Afghanistan. So, you know, the same thing they did with these revolutions, they did. But, the, but my point is, starting from the 70s, when they started, to, from the late 70s, so after 78, 79 even, they'd lost Iran. Iran and Afghanistan were under these revolutionary governments, anti-American governments. But they still had Pakistan, right? So Pakistan became their base for everything, for opium, for smuggling, the CIA programs, the covert operations, the weapons lines, everything, right? They did, they did the biggest, they, they transformed Pakistan and Afghanistan like completely starting in the 70s. So that was, you know, 40 plus years ago. And in the late 2010s or sometime in the 2010s, 2011, something like this, the Pakistanis basically said, you can't use our bases anymore for your drone war. And then the Americans went, that's fine. We have four good, we have four good bases in Afghanistan. So the next 10 years, they freely bombed Pakistan and Afghanistan from those bases. Now those bases are gone too. So Iran hosts no bases. As far as I know, I don't know, I don't think any of the Central Asian republics, which are very close to Russia, I don't believe any of them host right. American bases. A whole bunch of stands up there. Yeah, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, yeah. Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, which is the big right. one, Kyrgyzstan. Right. So I don't think they host bases and Pakistan doesn't host bases. So that, that's a huge region of the world now where the right. U.S. has lost uh, its ability to, you know, really freely run their CIA operations, run their drone assassination program, run their covert, you know, agents mm -hmm. and, and stuff. They can still do things. Mm -hmm. You know, they still have their base in Qatar. They still have other, you know, they have things all around. Sure. You know, they have their naval, they have their ships around Iran and in the Gulf and on the South China Sea and everywhere, right? They have all that stuff. But like that, that, that pin they stuck right in the center of Asia, they don't have that anymore. And right. they wanted that. They want that. Like that's, you know, the way they understand the world, they, the way they understand geopolitics and like the whole world is this chessboard. They want that space. Right. That's See, a that, big loss. Yeah, you look at the map. Uh, Pepe Escobar was talking about this with uh, Ben Norton and, and uh, Max Blumenthal today. And I listened to it, and they showed a lot of maps. And yeah, if you look at the map, you know, Afghanistan sandwiched between yeah. uh, Iran and, uh, and Pakistan. And, and Pakistan's interesting because they, they were never, they're kind of a, a very dubious ally, weren't they? I mean, yeah. Laden's hiding in plain sight all those years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, you can understand why Pakistan would be a little miffed about that as well, because it's like Bin Laden was your guy. Like, mm -hmm. I thought we were all in this together. And now you're telling us, you know, now you're telling us he's number enemy number one. Like, right. Right. you know, right. so Pakistan, uh, you said, has, has basically, in, in your view, decided that China is actually the more reliable ally. Yeah, I think? yeah, I think so. So what's happened with Pakistan, especially since 2001, where it's like Pakistan has this 
relationship with the U.S. where they're like, okay, you know, we have this great thing to get. We're we're destroying Afghanistan together. We're unleashing all these monsters on the people of that country. And now all of a sudden you're like, no, we're going to start bombing uh, Af- Pakistan too. And you expect us to do this um, operation in Waziristan and you expect us to do these brutal things which they do for a while and then they realize they don't really like that very much um and then um you know china's china's whole thing is we don't interfere in your internal politics right that's china's and so china's like you know you're our neighbor we want we have a china pakistan economic corridor we have projects we want to do seems like you want to do them let's do them Right. And, and uh, uh, yeah. Pepe, Pepe Escobar is big on the projects, especially the pipelines. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Pi- you know, I, I think that stuff can be a little overstated. Little yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, um, yeah. Okay. Pipelines. Sure. You know, they want people, want, people like building pipelines. They like building roads. They like, and it's also like, same. That's, I feel the same way about oil and gas and, and opium. It's like, yeah, there's always something, you right. know? Like they didn't like if you study the scramble for Africa, it's like were they were did they did they take over Africa for ivory or rubber or like gold or what? Like they all every every inch of Africa was taken. Not every inch of Africa has something of value. So that's not really how imperialism works. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, so but yeah, the pipelines will be built. You know now now, but like now. There is the possibility of Afghanistan becoming more of a, you know, quote unquote, normal Central mm-hmm. Asian Republic like the Kazakhstan or, or Uzbekistan or whatever, where they have mm-hmm. projects with their neighbors and right. they have, you know, right. they don't have like people blowing up schools or like blowing up pipelines all the time. What the, ta- the Taliban's not going to do that. And, right. uh, you know, if ISIS or whatever tries to do that and they don't have a, U.S. embassy and U.S. you know intelligence assets and all that stuff to to fall back on. It's going to be a lot harder to pull those things off, I think. Right now, it comes to the heroin is kind of interesting because the yeah. Taliban almost eradicated it by 2001. It was almost gone, and then it skyrockets again under U.S. under the yeah. U.S. Uh, occupation. Yeah. Now there have been announcements. Apparently, the Taliban's announced that they're going to eradicate it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess one benefit of that is is it, it, it helps them look good to certain important allies who want the stuff, uh, don't want their own population. Yeah, I don't think it's it. yeah, I don't think it's just a look. You know, it's a little bit like okay, so from the point of view of a farmer growing it, um, there's some money in it, and there's more money in it than like it's you know we know Latin America, we know Colombia, we know how this works. Like the farmers can make a little bit more money than they could with any other crop, and then there's buyers and there's infrastructure that you wouldn't get. Someone will come to you to buy it, as opposed to you having to go somewhere to sell it on on certain roads, whatever. There's all these benefits. If you're as state that wants to do a substitution program. Uh, what do you what do you have to offer? What do you have to offer while the U.S. is in actual de facto control of your countryside? How can how can how can a country have an anti drug program? How can a country have crop substitution or anything while the U.S. and the CIA are actually running the whole thing? Like 
they would assassinate you, right? Like they would assassinate an, an Afghan government official that tried to interfere with their business. It's right. a different- or, or, they're, they're, or by extension, they're Northern Alliance warlords, whoever who needed yeah. the- Yeah, one exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, so if you look at Iran, Iran grows a lot of poppy, I think, for licit, for so-called licit um, use. So they're, you know, they're a supplier of, so is Turkey. So, you know, maybe they'll, maybe they'll make some deal where Afghanistan becomes a supplier of, um, of legal, opi you know, medicinal opium, maybe not, maybe they'll just eradicate it all. But if Iran, you know, if the Taliban are savvy negotiators, and we know they are <laughs> on a military level, they'll make sure that if Iran wants them, because Iran, like all, a lot of the opium, a lot of the people suffering from opium are the, are in the neighboring countries, right? Like Russia, Iran, Pakistan, Pakistan grows opium too, uh, poppy too. But like, if those countries want Afghanistan to eradicate, then maybe they can offer, you know, business deals, which again, that's not possible with America occupying the country. But it is, you know, it's 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 a no-brainer when when you don't have that kind of problem. Right. Now, interestingly, uh, Karzai, you know, the first puppet <laughs> after yeah. the original invasion, he's somewhat turned. He's not. Uh, <laughs> is that is that true? Well, okay. Um, he was a puppet for sure, in the sense that there was no way that he could rule without U.S power behind him he was chosen as a puppet because he had a certain amount of sway with the warlords in particular i don't know how some people think it's like compromat you know like he had he had tapes he knew where the bodies were buried and that kind of stuff well for whatever reason he had um he had some he had some political capital uh, including with the warlords. And he was able to, whatever state building <laughs> there was, and there clearly was not a lot, um, he was doing, you know, toward, you know, in his second administration, he, I think he managed to get customs revenue flowing from Herat even, like from some of these very independent minded warlords. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I guess he, he stayed, right? He didn't, he didn't leave. I right, think he's, he's still, still he's, he's still he's there. In there. He's yeah. in there, uh, kind of negotiating, wheeling and dealing, or something. So, like the, the yeah. you know, one of he the didn't warlords. Get on a plane and fly away, like Ghani, yeah. right? Like Ghani, yeah. one of the warlords, Rashid Dostum, who's like super interesting career, but he committed a lot of atrocities against the Taliban over the years. So it makes sense that he, you know, he right. had to go. He, he knew, right. you know, he, he had to go. He, he, he's the kind of guy who like has a base and has popularity and stuff, but like, that's not gonna, you, there's like right. a level of, like, he's the guy who, who sealed a bunch of them in cargo containers right. and let them suffocate and stuff. So. Right. Well, now we were talking, I was asking you earlier about this guy, Masood Sr., who was assassinated yeah. just shortly before 9 11. Mm -hmm. Uh, by Al Qaeda posing as journalists or something, and yeah, yeah. what's interesting to me, well, the reason that name sticks in my brain, because I, I was kind of struck at the time of around the time of 9/11, I was reading articles by Fisk, uh, Robert. Yeah, Fisk, everybody has this romance. Yeah, 
Yeah, and and Fisk was yeah, like you say, he was very uh, impressed with them and called them honorable. And even Pepe Escobar says he was a great man. And I'm just thinking, really, because I remember Rawa, Rawa yeah. hated the guy, right? The women, yeah. uh, revolutionary women of Afghanistan, they hated the guy. Uh, they didn't consider him any better than any other warlord. But for some reason, he had this uh, mystique yeah. about him or something. I, th- I just, and apparently his son does not. Apparently, people see his son as a kind of <laughs> the apple. Yeah. Yeah. But that's yeah. the problem with all the all the warlord sons. Dostum had a son. Uh, you know, like all the warlords have sons that are like trying to fill their shoes. Yeah. But and like a lot, of, a lot of times, the, the copy is never as good. The more you copy, yeah. the copy it just doesn't. <laughs> it's it's this is why monarchy. You know, this is why the British overthrew the monarchy because they knew they could plunder the world better if they could access a wider pool of talent you know right, um, right, right. so you, you, give a, you give me a quick take on on this Masood senior and why people were so impressed with him uh, yeah okay so Masood senior um he's just one of these warlords like he he was he was out there trying to overthrow the the nationalist government from the 70s on um, he like, so they're all, you know, they all have different sponsors, you know, some are sponsored by Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Iran, whatever. Um, I, th- I can't remember Masood's Tajik. Uh, I, he's from the Panjshir Valley. He was always with Rabbani too. I think they were closest to the Americans. Like, I think they were like America's guys. If I, if I yeah. remember. So, right. so that's, that's reason number one. Right. So like, if you're like Russell Sayoff or whatever, who's the Saudi guy, you're not going to have that same mystique as the American guy. Or if you're Dostum, who's like in Mazar, who's like closer to the Uzbekistan and whatnot, or Her- Ismail Khan in Herat, who's closer to the Iranians. Like the America's guy is going to be the most media. He's going to talk to the media the most. He's going to be the most, he's going to be portrayed as, you know, the Paul Kagame, the, the you know the cool he's always photograph he looks good in photographs he kind of looks like Che Guevara right he's got the he's got the beret and he's like yeah. you know he's like fighting on camera you know like yeah, he's, right, he's right. doing these operations he's like you want to see something and then he goes and he like fires a rocket or whatever right, right. so um and when the Taliban took over in 2000 and I mean in 1996 a number of warlords kept fighting and Panjshir Valley where he was from was very close to Kabul. Like it was, that was the limit of where the Taliban were. So right. he fled from Kabul. <laughs> I mean, he was in Kabul when the Taliban took over. Him and Rabbani were in charge in Kabul when the Taliban took over and he fled, but like he fled to somewhere close and he, you know, he kept fighting and he had a plan he, his battle plan apparently is what the Americans ended up using for taking um, Kabul yeah. from. Now, is, now there's another warlord, Hekmatyar. Hek Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, yeah. So Hekmatyar, he, yeah. he was kind of like, like, I would say he was like the Pakistan-sponsored warlord. Okay. Um, and, he's, and he's in there now? He's in the mix now? Yeah, I think so. He's an he's amazing because he's one of the worst. Like he's committed among the worst atrocities over the longest period of time. But I I think because he was all he, he was always pretty good with the Taliban because I think mm-hmm. they were there. His group were always in and out with the Taliban. So and I think they're just closest in ideology and and probably personnel change back and forth. But I think he. 
so he but he's like he was like an anti-government from like the early 70s like he was he was against he's been standing against uh, nationalism and progress in afghanistan <laughs> for for 50 years right. so yeah like i think he and for me he's like the worst so right. hikmatyar is but he, so and specifically hikmatyar has a history with masood because they they took kabul together in 1992 and uh and then masood and rabbani were on one side and hikmatyar was on the other and they they couldn't agree on who should be president and hikmatyar wanted to be president i guess and right. he, they they kicked him out of Kabul and he began to attack Kabul. So he like bombed, he's the one who like shelled. Like the worst destruction of Kabul was Hikmatyar oh. attacking Kabul out of just bitterness. Like he's gonna shell you until you make him president, <laughs> which you, you know, you can imagine doesn't, <laughs> doesn't go right. over that well. And it didn't go over all that well at the time, but you know, he somehow managed to reinvent himself. Uh, well, so I understand, I've heard that the Taliban have actually made some, some uh, moves to present themselves as more tolerant, I guess a better version of themselves from yeah, 2001. Yeah, yeah. They've made some uh, overtures to the Shia community or Shia yeah, Muslims and exactly. stuff that, yeah. So you think that they can, that's the approach they're gonna take is um, uh, try to legitimize themselves. And now they have potential, not, not just maybe they're not going to win over the u.s but win over enough regional allies to not have to or to not have to care that much if the u.s is hostile i think so i mean that's what they're saying right and so you know you can it's easy to say you know the simplest thing is to be like who cares what they say what matters is their record and their record is bad right their record from 96 to 2001 i mean you know they're not different from the other Mujahideen, including the government, the, all the warlords that were in the government. But right. all of the warlords in the government, I mean, there are some Hazara warlords now, but, you know, Hazara being the Shia community, which is kind of like a traditionally oppressed community right. in Afghanistan. Right. Um, but so the Hazara uh, were massacred, met like there were multiple massacres of Hazaras by the Mujahideen at many points in during the you know 80s 90s Masood I think um I'll have to look I'll have to look again but I'm I I think Masood was responsible for a big massacre of Hazaras the Taliban massacred Hazaras like it was just Hakmatyar certainly massacred Hazaras right so that was you know that was then but that was also like, they, they said that, that was what they said. They said that was their ideology. Their ideology was like the Saudi, like only Sunnis are Muslims, right? Shia are not real Muslims. And, um, you know, they, they, as when they were in the insurgency period from 2001, they attacked girl schools and they attacked, you know, all of the symbols of women's education and empowerment. And they've said this time that their women have equal rights up to the level of Islam, whatever that means, which, you know, since women are Muslims too, I imagine women <laughs> will, you know, before long, I would think, expect to uh, 
play a role in defining what that means. Um, right. We'll see how that goes. But but what I'm saying is, they when they were saying when they were doing bad things from '96 to 2001, they were also saying bad things. Right. So. If they're going to do bad things now, it'll be against what they're saying. So who knows? You know, like we don't know. Nobody knows what they're going to do, but we can definitely say that what they've said is a good sign. Like these are. Right. Okay. You You were talking, you had a post today, um, kind of making fun of the way writers, you know, well, in your book about uh, the Congo and and Rwanda, you talk a lot about Africanist scholars and the tropes they they, they try to invariably use. And you talk, when you talk about Afghanistan, you have to talk about all these ethnicities and and make it sound as if a a national project is impossible. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's kind of convenient for imperialism, I guess, to do that, right? You play up the, because you could do that anyway. You could do that in Canada. You could play up all the different oh ethnicities and say, what? how are they a country? They shouldn't be a country. Look at all the different yep. <laughs> You know, and uh, you could do that anywhere. Um, so, and you're saying this is, uh, I think the one thing you're intimating there is that uh, all this focus on ethnicities is a, is a, uh, is a destructive, uh, part of a destructive tactic to divide and rule. It's a, it's a destructive tactic uh, to divide and rule. And it's also, like historically and in contemporary terms, false. Like Afghans are Afghan patriots. Like they're, you know, even like you'll, I've seen Afghans basically insult each other by being like, you're not a real Afghan. You know, like they don't say, they'll be Pashtuns and they'll, they won't say you're not a real Pashtun. So it's like there's Afghan nationalism is a real force. And it's, yeah. it's been a real force, I would argue, since like 1747 when, when, when it was carved out of the Persian Empire by an ambitious, uh, one could say warlord if one was so inclined. But um, yeah, so I, I, it's, just, it's just like the most convenient thing to pretend it doesn't exist, but it does exist. They, and there's a word for it, which I used in the tweet. I, I, you know, they call it Afghaniyat, which is like, Right. Afghanness. The right. Kashmiris also have this term, Kashmiriyat. I've heard it in both right. of those contexts. Do you hear um, Taliban's use the Taliban using the word? I have not, mm-hmm. but I have heard a lot of statements from the Taliban saying, you know, we are Afghans, we are, you know, mm-hmm. sons of Afghanistan. You, you know, these people are Afghans. You can't do this to people because they're Afghans. And in fact, the the biggest attack on the Taliban that people make is that they're really secretly Pakistanis. Uh, so okay. that's like, that's like the so, attack that is always right. made on the Taliban is that, oh, they're, they're not even really Afghans. They're Pakistanis. Right. So anyone who tells you Afghan nationalism last thing is either bullshitting or doesn't know. Doesn't yeah. know what they're doing. <laughs> For sure. That's okay. All right. So I think that covers uh, the Those are your so cues? Those are my cues, unless you got something else you want to think I missed that should have mentioned. Well, yeah, I um, I want to go, you know, I want to, there are certain other things that I haven't gone into uh, that I will be, I just, there. I have to look some of these things up, but I think, uh, I think we need to go back very carefully and like do the equivalent of a, what do you call it? Like a truth and reconciliation commission about the American occupation. Like that has to like, they're gone now it's it's like 
it could be really healing for Afghans um, to go back and like, just like go through the crimes and the costs to Afghans of and the atrocities that were committed against them. Because really, the Americans between their kind of narrative control, their effective control over Afghan media and like the kinds of media that are consumed by the Afghan diaspora and Afghans in Afghanistan, as well as their like covering up of, of their crimes. I don't like Afghans don't even know what, you know, what was done to them, you know, what was done out in those rural areas and, and where the occupation was really intense. So like, I think, you know, that's one thing if you're like, a, if you're one of those Western journalists who loves to dig up the story, you know, yeah. please join me, <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, in that would this be the project. Case for the pro that would be the case for the prosecution that doesn't get made, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's my pet peeve is that yeah. they, they can envision the prosecution of Assange and not yeah. only envision it, do it yeah. <laughs> mercilessly, just without yeah. any regard for the law. Yeah. But the idea of prosecuting Biden, Trump, Obama for any of this yeah. stuff, they didn't, yeah, that's out of the question. Even, and it bothers me when I don't even see activists making that. Yeah. Mess. And, and it's, it. it's also like, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that because like, even with Iraq, there's better activist um, discourse yes. about, yes. about like Tony Blair is a war criminal, exactly. uh, killed a million Iraqis. And it's like, you know, at least there's this trope that we have that they killed a million Iraqis. Nobody right. even has any inkling, unless you've read Nicholas Davies's Mint Press article, right. you don't even have an inkling of where to land for an approximate estimate of how many Afghans were killed. So like, I, I, think, I think that's a really important project uh, to do, um, to do an accounting. Let's compile the dossier for the future war crimes tribunal right. that exactly. Afghans, that Afghan, and, and it's like, you know, the other thing I want to say is like, um, Canada is like not going to recognize the So I think they're setting up, um, like you said, economics, they're going to try all of these things. They've, they've got a Juan Guaido, you know that? There's a guy who says he's, he's the interim president. Of, he's declared himself the interim president of Afghanistan. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that Masood's son or is that? It's Masood's son's buddy. Oh, Masood's son's buddy. Okay, he's, he's in he's in Masood's son's uh, valley. Um, oh, okay, he's in the Panjshir Valley, and I made that quip because Alan McLeod, I think, the other day said Juan Guaido has declared himself interim <laughs> president of Afghanistan. And people thought that was hilarious. Yeah. And this morning, I was like, actually, Guaido can't declare himself president of Afghanistan because Afghanistan already has a Juan Guaido. And his yeah. name is Amrullah Saleh. So Amrullah right. Saleh has declared yeah, himself. These guys are like uh, like Chalabis, right? Nobody talks about Chalabi because he was such. Yeah. He became such a joke that nobody even wants to admit they ever talked about him. So they've got all the tools. They're going to do all the tools, um, but you know they did lose. Right. <laughs> so like the, all of the things that they were doing when they were occupying the country are going to be harder for them to do now, not easier. This is a real uh, defeat. 
that doesn't mean they're going to stop doing them. So they're, oh, they're yeah. going to have their Guaido. They're going to do all their financial shenanigans. They're going to do their sanctions. They're going to sanction Taliban officials. They're going to do all of that, right? They're going to try to stop businesses from doing business, business with businesses that do business with Afghanistan. They're going to do all that. But, um, but like, you know, there's like the Taliban, uh, you know, Canada's not going to recognize the Taliban. And it's like, you know, the other day I, 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 I thought about this and I was like, that's, that's cool. So Talib, Canada apparently hates misogynist uh, ideology so much that they're not going to recognize the Taliban while they sell billions of dollars of weapons to Saudi, which is like the same yeah. ideology and the same actions. But it's like, it's worse than that, right? It's like, should the Taliban recognize Canada? Like, did the, does the Taliban have the same number of dead children on their hands that Canada does? You know, and un- sitting in unmarked graves, and un- like, there's a lot of dead bodies in in Afghanistan. Like, the Taliban are responsible for a lot of deaths. They've they've blown up schools. They've killed children, but have they killed as many children as Canada? 